So what you're seeing here is a 2017 Mercedes Sprinter uh, with no onboard automated technologies operating at the same levels as a 2018 Tesla Model S. Wow. This episode of the Bloomex podcast is brought to you by Nava Wilson LLP. Nava Wilson LLP provides services in real estate, corporate law, and litigation, and is committed to increasing access to and awareness of the justice system. Nava Wilson is also the legal advisor for YSpace, York University's incubator, and The Hub, the University of Toronto Scarborough campus's incubator. They are willing to provide up to $5,000 worth of services to a select few startups in Toronto. If you're a startup looking for access to legal services, contact us at the link below to find out more. Perfect. All right. We're on live. I don't know what I should be saying, but... I don't know either. <laughs> All right, Mitt. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, yeah, you're a super interesting dude. We've been, like, getting pretty close lately because you're into a little bit of everything. Right. But you're also one of the accountants that actually know what they're talking about. <laughs> and I realized very quickly that you're someone that uh, actually understands uh, in a, accounting from a very different level of fields, right? From the finance side to like actual bookkeeping to like running things. And it's partially because you have your own your own firm, your own accounting firm downtown, and you work with a lot of companies, right? So let's talk a little bit about you and um, what brought you to the stage. I know you're working on a, as a CFO as at Exmatic, a self-driving star car startup. But before we go into that. Let's talk a little bit more about Mitt. Like, um, you came out of uh, what university again? Brock? Brock University. Yeah. Came out of Brock. And how's that experience been, man? That, that got you right into the finance field, got into the accounting field? Yeah, so maybe I can, I'll just walk you through sort of like how we, yeah. we got here. So uh, currently, I'm the CFO of Ixmatic. I'm partner at my accounting practice uh, where we, help, we work with tech sector and real estate space, but clients in between as well. Um, and on top of that, involved in a couple of other startups, a couple of other businesses. Again, as you mentioned, hands in, 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 in multiple things. Where yeah. We typically have operators managing some of those businesses, and we're really there for strategic advice. Uh, so what got us here uh, is a lot of failures, struggles, issues, and just figuring it out. Uh, in high school, we had, uh, I'm obviously a CA, so in high school we had CPA Ontario or uh, the ICAO Institute come in and say, hey, do you want you want the guide to rule in the world? That was the, their pitch. They had a whole pamphlet related to it. And, you know, they said, oh, the CEO of MLSC is a CA. Uh, one of the head guys at Mercedes is a CA. And what teenage boy doesn't want to, you know, be the CEO of MLSC and drive around in Mercedes? Yeah. So immediately you're like, oh, my God, I want to be a, a They got CA. you the sale. Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, for my... Background: My parents didn't really know, you know, investment banking, finance, etc. But they knew what a what a CA was. Yeah, yeah. That's something consistent with them back home. So when I said, "Hey, I'm going to go into accounting," they're like, "Okay, that that makes sense." I did uh, accounting at uh, as a co-op in high school, and funny, I was an AR clerk, you know, collecting checks. And <laughs> I still remember uh, at Wonderland, uh, Pizza Pizza uh, was returning an amount, and they weren't going to pay a twelve thousand dollar balance. And I remember my accounting manager at the time being like, it's okay, like, we'll write that off. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to call and I'll collect it. And he's like, no, this is immaterial. And I was like, what's immaterial? Every dollar counts. Um, and then and with a, a couple of other factors, some video games that I used to play really had their own economies. And uh, I don't know if anyone knows who's watching this. It's called RuneScape. Yeah. Learned about the uh, 
the different economies that they had there, they had different worlds. Uh, and so supply and demand really came into play with there. Uh, I really liked one aspect of the game, which was uh, player killing or, or fighting. Yeah. Uh, but it costs money to do that. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you could either sit there and you could grind it out and you can work and, you know, you cut, cut ch uh, chop wood or you, you mine rocks and you can collect that resource and you sell it. But it takes hours on it. And I said, this doesn't make sense. But then what I realized was in certain areas of the world, you could sell things and for a lot more than other places where you could buy it for a lot cheaper. So uh, we used to call it merchanting. We're like now, nowadays, you just learn it's called buy low, sell high. Yeah. Uh, so funny enough, when, when I went to high school, I was able to apply that as well to like, my business courses. Uh, I actually joined an organization uh, in high school. I was actually forced into it at the time in grade nine. Uh, it was called DECA. Yeah. Uh, so DECA, you do a lot of business case competitions uh, where you're given a scenario for a business uh, in a different environment or different category. So most people assume I did accounting. Actually, I only did accounting in, in my grade nine year when nice. I knew nothing about accounting. Nice. <laughs> um, but what was cool was you got to see different business scenarios yeah. and they would say, what's the solution? What, what, what are your recommendations? You're the marketing manager of this. Or you're the finance manager for this. This is the problem. And, you know, your client or the, your boss wants a solution, figure it out. So what I really liked about that was it was a lot of problem solving, thinking that I had to do. So I did that actually all throughout high school. I competed internationally in high school and then continued on through university where I got to compete all across uh, the states. Uh, and really, I always did a category that wasn't related to accounting. And people used to ask me why. And I said, because accounting, I, you know, I went to school for, I learned the fundamentals. It, it doesn't excite me as much mm -hmm. as trying to learn new businesses and different ideas which ultimately, as I started my uh, CA role at PwC, I found it really crazy that I could see, I get to work at, see a lot of these public companies, learn their systems, their background. But unfortunately, as, uh, as typical with most accounting firms, is you're only there to do the accounting work and then move on to the next role. Mm. Uh, whereas I really want to learn more about the operations and the reasons why. So I took that opportunity to really sit down with CEOs and CFOs of public companies and understand the business plan reasons as to why, because that's what really excited me more than anything. Um, so yeah, you're, you're telling me about that. You're like, a lot of accountants you're working with, they did the work and went home. But you're like, no, no, no. I, I, like, you get the opportunity to ask questions to these high-level CEOs, see what's going on behind the scenes, um, why they did the, the, did, made their move that they wanted to do. Right? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, right. So what do you see? The, the thing is, obviously, CPO Ontario said you're going to have the guide to rule in the world. Uh, I started as an auditor at PwC. Um, as a co-op student, and funny enough, the first thing I had to do was really say, okay, these transactions or investment transactions were happening. Okay, I have to look at bank statements and just agree that that transaction happened. I said, this does not is not congruent with what I had in my mind of what I would be doing. <laughs> as a, it as, it, as it a didn't CA. seem as sexy as uh, exactly. was promised. Yeah, yeah, it seemed like it was a lot more like bookkeeping, validation of work. Yeah, um, and I found that you could easily get lost in the minutia of just okay, I'm just going to do this and I'm, I'm going to go home. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe it was because of, of DECA and I got to interact with some, you know, like CEOs and CFOs. I always wanted to learn from people who knew what they were doing and clearly as public company CEOs and CFOs or even controllers, like they had their own path and it was, it was really great to ask them why they did things. Yep. Uh, just documenting, okay, this is why this transaction happened or this transaction happened because they entered into this agreement. Great. But it's asked why. And I think that's what really sets you apart when you're moving in the accounting firms as well as to like when you're going to be a manager or a partner track of thinking how things all interrelate and correlate. Because if you can understand, oh, why they did things, you can assume or understand or expect that other things are going to happen down the road as well. Yeah. Like, for example, if you enter into a sales agreement of sorts for a different stream of revenue, you know that next year you're going to have a different stream of revenue and there's going to be a liability associated with it that you have to pay so that when you're talking with the client, you can say, okay, what have, have you 
when, for your budget, have you forecasted this? What does it look like? Uh, I worked in the mining uh, industry quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these companies, and some junior mines, so they used to have cash flow issues and they'd always have to raise money. Yeah. So there was always a going concern risk that they were going to go under in a, less than a year or so. So we had to get their budgets and ask them why these things were happening. And I found that very interesting is understanding the why behind the numbers. Um, and, and I guess that's what, uh, what helped me there. Uh, yeah. I went from PwC to a smaller accounting practice uh, where I got to work with owner-managed businesses along with these public company CFOs as well. And at this point, these, these gentlemen were a little bit older, um, and so they would let me be involved a lot more. And I got to see a lot more things and understand you know, how they were managing their books, how, like, how in the cash crunch scenario they would manage these scenarios. Funny enough, now as the CFO of a startup, I can, see, I can resonate with a lot of the things that they were talking about and the things that they did, I actually find myself doing as well. And from learning from their experiences, I knew that you know, one day I'd be starting my own business or pursuing it. Um, and so that made sense from there. Nice. Uh, one of the things we, we joked about is like how university prepares you for the real world, especially at PwC, where there's a very uh, party culture almost, where like you take out your clients, you give them a show them a good time, because that's part of the experience that is required to do business, mm -hmm. um, is that you need to have, build that relationship. And having that entertainment value of going to take them out to a basketball game or take them to a bar, get, get some drinks, or go to a restaurant, uh, it's fundamental to how business translates, almost, right? Yeah. And uh, we're joking about how university and uh, hanging out with your friends, that key, that learning that uh, that ability of how to do that, right, translates a lot more in the, in the, into the professional field as well. See, funny enough, uh, a lot of my friends in university didn't have that experience. Yeah. For them, they were like, okay, I'm not really going to socialize with the client, etc., or I'm going to have a drink with the client and go. Yeah. Uh, but I actually found that was a great opportunity to learn more about that person. Again, I mean, I'm sure I've told you before, prior to this podcast, I always like to learn from people who are walking a different path in life or they're ahead in a few years. And I always figured that was like my way to shortcut my, my path to get there. Yeah. Getting there is by learning from their experiences and understanding what they did. Uh, and what better opportunity than when over a few drinks where, you know, they're loosening up and willing to chat a little bit more and spend a little bit more time and provide feedback. Yep. Actually, some of the greatest experience I've had is with CFOs and controllers over a few drinks where, you know, with one of them, I've, I was invited to their wedding as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, that kind of experience doesn't happen where even I ran into them a few months back and, and we, it's just like catching up with like one of your close friends. Exactly. They don't forget you after that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think more than just PwC, what, what actually taught me that was actually joining organizations like DECA yeah. and all the other case competitions that I did. Typically, you had a lot of people who were uh, high achievers, and they like to socialize as well. Mm -hmm. uh, going to PwC, you have some people who can be conservative as well from a professional services standpoint, uh, or where they're being conservative with the client. Um, and funny enough, I would say I started off as an introverted person. Yeah. Uh, but through doing DECA, I worked at Canner's Wonderland. Uh, I learned that being an, being extroverted and, and, and sales uh, was a very important aspect of things. Did you, uh, you find you had to push yourself towards that, or did that those skills come with as time went on for you? I, you it was it, I had to learn at first. It was uh, difficult. Yeah. I would say. Um, you know, even even when I started my own accounting practice at first, it was it was obviously difficult as well. You're, you're going out before you could you had the name of PwC or a brand behind you. And now you're going out on your own to say, "Hey, I'm the one who's going to do it." Yeah, uh, it's it's a lot, <laughs> a lot well, harder. Yeah. It's a lot. You're like, "Am I? Can I really sell myself? Does this really make sense? Is anyone really going to take me seriously, etc." Yeah. Um, and funny enough, before I actually went to go on the path of pursuing my own accounting practice, I was working as an asset manager, um, debating should I do this or should I not. And I actually had uh, former 
uh, VP of finance of one of the pharmaceutical companies that used to audit reach out to me and say, hey, Mitt, we had our former controller leave. We need someone to help bridge the gap to do some consulting. Will you come in? That was insane for me at that time because yeah. it was they were paying me for some, for just my uh, my capacity and my skill set. Yeah. Which previously I was just working a job where I, I knew set duties and tasks that were provided. This was figuring things out, things I didn't immediately know right away, and they were paying for all that time. And so from there I knew, okay, clearly she saw enough value in my skill set that she was willing to pay for it. And from there I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to pursue this. So that validated where, where you wanted to go. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool, man. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like, I, I do a lot of work now with like university school students, high school students, and you see the lack of social skills is so apparent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's partly, I, I think, because of you know, being on phones and exactly. social media Technology, and stuff. Yeah. But also the culture on the campus have changed, right? There's yeah. no like, large-scale parties. There's no large-scale like, um, gatherings, social gatherings. People you know, have Netflix parties where a like, few friends get together <laughs> and just hang out. And the lack of social skills, I think, is going to translate very poorly for them as they're getting out, right? Um, so, I mean, talking about this, I talked to a lot of kids. I'm like, you need to get out. Yeah, you need to so, talk to people. So what I found really interesting about that whole aspect of things is that, yeah, you can be the smartest person in the room, and this is what I learned. You can be the smartest person ever uh, in a business and say, I've got, like, the best idea. But if you can't sell it, you can't talk to someone, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, one of the concerns for accounting, finance, a lot of organizations is, like, AI is going to replace us. Yeah. Sure, it can replace it, but at the end of the day, it's a human being making a decision to, in, uh, to buy something. Or, and, and for that, sure, technology can help us as tools, but a lot, of comfort, a lot of comfort for clients comes from the fact that they have another person on the other side that they can trust, that they can talk to, that understands their point of view. Uh, I'm sure, as you know from your experience as a salesperson, that uh, there's points where you probably sold a product that they could have just went and bought themselves. Yep. But it's the reassurance that you're able to provide and guide them through it that made them choose to work with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? And definitely, like people, there's so many products where people can just literally go out, order on Amazon, buy it, but they'll rather call me or call someone that's a professional because they want that assurance that, like, hey, is this, am I doing is it right? Right? And um, it, it translates very well in the professional field as well because much of technology has caught up. It still hasn't caught up to the point where, like, it replaces people. And I think more and more as technology grows, the creative industries, especially sales. I don't think sales is going to ever die because, you know, (laughs) you need a good salesperson. And it's funny that you talked about this because you're one of the few people that are an operator who can actually sell, right? Whereas in general, you'll have someone in a firm who's a salesperson who talks all the game and then brings the business into the company for the operators to do, who do it really well. But those operators cannot go out and get those clients themselves, right? So it's that, 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 that duo kind of mentality, right? I worked at a firm that uh, mostly sales, right? And uh, the CEO pretty much ran like a completely commissions uh, only sales, sales, like a sales team, 60 people running commission only. And part of that is because he realizes that this company is a sales first company. There's, there's salespeople and everybody else who, after the sale is committed, they process it, right? But you're someone that really sells and operates at the same time. I mean, what are the challenges there, especially when it comes to accounting? Like, you have to maintain this, the, the line of business and the communications, and as well as done, uh, do the actual commitment work, right? Yeah, so the way we've always looked at the accounting practice is never compromise quality and provide amazing client service. So um, what all the firms will call it is called distinctive client services. And so for me, that was very important, is that no matter what, as an operator, I provide the best value I can to my clients. And as a result, even now, a lot of our business comes from word of mouth. We do a lot of events. We, we speak at a lot of real estate events. Uh, you know, we get a lot of 
referrals as a result of those events, but also from our existing clientele. Uh, when you can rely on someone to take care of your work for you, the sales happens as it's for itself. But fortunately for me, uh, I started off as an operator, uh, but I knew that in order to grow the accounting practice, sure, I could be, the, again, as I mentioned before, I could be the smartest person in the room, but if I can't go out and communicate my idea and my value to them, uh, I won't be sustainable that way. Yep. And so, actually, the first six months of my business, when I first started, was figuring that out, figuring out the sales pitch. Because, sure, I previously, when I worked at Cannes Wernland, I did sales, I worked at Designer Depot, I worked some few other jobs where sales was a factor, but it wasn't the main factor. Uh, so six months of just figuring it out, uh, looking up online, and, and you know, actually, it was really recalling my, the skills that I had learned in DECA, when you had to communicate your strategy and sell them on to why they should pursue this option, which then brought me back to when I would have to convince partners or clients as to the accounting methodology and why they should pursue it. So then the sales point became very simple and, and, and straightforward. It's, oh, just show them the value proposition, which from an operator standpoint, you're just like, oh, this is good. You should just do it this way. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, you need to walk them through, explain it like a five-year-old for them to understand as to why they should move forward with you. Yeah, there's different zones of like uh, the communication, right? Which is like, you know, very over-level uh, over for like people who don't understand the nitty-gritty. Then at the, the computational level, where it's like you get into the nitty gritty of the people who actually understand the subject matter, mm -hmm. right? Um, cool. So, like, what kind of clients do you work with? So we and work, you work with, with a lot of mining companies before, but like now, right? So actually, at PwC, I work with a wide variety, and same with the smaller firm. Uh, funny enough for me, my experience was that as a co-op at PwC, uh, I would come back in cyclical periods that didn't always line up with the firm's needs. So I was working in a variety of industry. Mining was my main group, but I worked financial services, not-for-profits, all over the board. So funny enough, each time I went to a client, it was brand new to me. I had to learn very quickly. A lot of my colleagues, unfortunately, they got to go on the same clients over and over again. So it wasn't like they really got to learn more about the business. They, they would get updates on what happened. For me, I had to learn the brand new business. I had to understand what the controls that were in place, what the people were doing, what the revenue streams were, what type of expenses related to that business. Mm -hmm. I think that experience in itself is what allowed me to learn different facets for different businesses. Um, as a result, like our accounting practice, was, I actually worked on the Quandal Audit at PwC, which is a tech startup that's now sold for billions. And I actually found that one was crazy. I remember looking at it and being like, yes, this technology, I see the value in technology. I was always a technology advocate. Um, and so I said, okay, the Toronto tech startup scene was just kind of starting around when I had started the accounting practice. This is 20... 2015, 2016 is when it started picking up a little bit yep, more. Yeah, that's when all the, the Silicon Valley, California types were coming here, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I think that's when, I forget the name of the bank that they had just created. Uh, that was going to invest in Canada as well. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank? Silicon Valley Bank, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They had, I think they just formed it around then. Yeah. Uh, but I'd come out to a few events while I was still working asset management before I wanted to make the plunge myself. Uh, and the other clients, I'm a, I also am a real estate investor, so indirectly a lot of the people who I used to invest with or discuss real estate with said, hey, man, aren't you a CA? Can't you, can you do my taxes? And I said, oh, I, like, I'm just doing my own taxes. Like, I don't really do it for other people. They said, Oh, like we'll pay you. Like it should be good. Like why not? And when the bring up your website here, yeah. So when the opportunity came about us to pursue uh, the tech space, we said, hey, why not manage, you know, the new money in tech with the old money of real estate? And it gives us a whole balanced firm where 
you know, there's cycles and booms. The accounting firm is somewhat consistent in cash flow. It makes sense for us to work with both sides. Or, you know, sometimes people want to diversify their portfolio out of tech into something more stable. So that's yep. real estate. And then real estate guys, that's they all point. they all know what they're going to make consistently. It's an underlying asset. Very conservative group, right? But then some of them want to say, hey, I want to take a little bit of my portfolio and put it in something else. Sure, you can buy some penny stocks or some marijuana stocks on, on the, <laughs> the exchanges. But for some of them, they want to get involved in technology because they can see how technology has rapidly changed in the past few years. So it's marrying the two. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about your real estate plays, right? Because um, that's how I met you. Right. A mutual yeah. friend of ours, which is a real estate agent, saw you on a YouTube video talking about, uh, was it construction projects? Renovation yeah. projects? Ren- renovation, right? like student rentals. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're part of like, you had a few projects lined up in the real estate space, right? From investing to mix to renovation projects, right? What's your play been in that, in that kind of space? Like, what have you been doing? So uh, initially, like, investing in real estate was just a passive way to grow my uh, wealth while I was working in asset management, uh, working at the accounting firms. I was investing in dividend-paying stocks. I really wanted uh, to produce a stream of income uh, that would sustain my lifestyle and help my family and, and support others. Uh, without the need for a job at the time. Yeah. So if you had asked me a few years ago if I would be starting the accounting practice, I would have said, not really, no way. Uh, and funny enough, here I am now speaking on a podcast about the accounting practice and yeah. about uh, the tech startups. So my, my path originally was, okay, I'm going to save X amount of money, put it into dividend-paying ETFs, have a few real estate uh, properties, and that should sustain my lifestyle. I can retire early. Um, and there was, no, there was like no end, and that was it. That, like, retire, and there we go. For some reason, at the time, it seemed okay. I'd hit 40 or so, and I'd be, I'd be there, and, and it would be okay. But slowly, uh, once that uh, monthly residual income started increasing more and more, I started asking myself, what is it that I'm really interested in? What am I very passionate about? Most people don't really get that opportunity because they're just trying to survive uh, or meet, make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for me at the time, I, I said, hey, like, if I retire by the time I'm 40, what am I going to do? Okay, my interests were, and I, I recalled all my memories from DECA, where I got to help, you know, help hypothetical business owners. But what I liked, even when I worked at the small firm, was I got to work with the owner managers and tell them advice that they implemented, and I got to see the end result, yep. which was amazing. And the same thing in asset management, where I was able to implement their ideas and, and realize cost savings and improvements that I was like, wow, this is awesome. But in my asset management role, it got capped at a certain point. Uh, and then in the accounting practice, I got to implement that. But in the same way in, in, with real estate, right? It, it was like, okay, I can do these things to help continue to grow it. So what are those things? Like, where did you put your money? Like, did you buy properties? Or did you help other people buy their properties? Right. So actually, my first property, I did a joint venture with the former controller of that pharmaceutical company. Nice. Um, so when I was working on that, at that job or working with them at the time or auditing previously when the controller was still there, I talked to him and said, hey, what are you doing? Like, what are your passions, et cetera? It took me a few weeks of, of, of chatting back and forth before he finally said, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to be retiring early, um, and this is how, and my real estate portfolio, et cetera. And I think he retired at the age of 31, so it was, it was crazy wow. to me. I sat wow. there being like, this is, whoa. I had my mind of maybe at 40, I'd, I'd retire early, but I'd still have to work as consulting, and you yeah. know, I'd make you know, a, a very, very low, modest income at the time. But then he just said he was making that right now. I said, whoa, like, how is this working? Uh, and then that's when he said, hey, look, I'm investing in real estate portfolio, et cetera, which, funny enough, back in university, I used to run all the numbers in, in the St. Catharines, Thorold area. But as a university student and as someone who was social, uh, a lot of my funds was ended up being spent at the bar <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or put in some TFSAs, but yeah. not enough to where I could have actually bought a real estate uh, yeah. property. 
Um, funny enough, so I did a joint venture with him. I did another. Uh, now we were invested in the U.S. Um, and doing some private lending and stuff as well. And slowly by being part of that network, more, more people started to refer business over at the time. But I was just more really interested in real estate deals. So talking about how to optimize their taxes or optimize their assets, where most people, they make a budget and they say, or projections say, okay, this is what my target return is. Okay, I'm going to buy the property. They buy the property, they rent it out, and then they forget about finding other cost savings or, or measures to increase their revenue, whether it's from you know potentially Airbnb being one of the rooms in the property or renting out the park, like the parking space or the shed. These are small things that you know are kind of funny, but uh, they do increase the cash flow and, and production no, of the asset. So who does right? that all for you? Like, do you take care of all of that, or so initially? So we've got a property manager in London who manages the day-to-day aspect of things, but it doesn't really take a lot of time. So uh, after building a lot of templates and spreadsheets, so basically when I analyze a deal, I'd be able to put a property in there, put the numbers through. But usually now my network's very strong enough that usually a, a deal will come up. And there's, there's a whole ecosystem to that business, and I could go on that forever, where there's wholesalers where they'll actually put the numbers together and say, Here, here's the numbers of the property. Mm-hmm. They don't have the funds to close on it. They need someone to buy it, and they earn uh, an assignment fee for that as a result. And so a lot of those actually come by my network right now. Actually, uh, two townhouses in, in London, Ontario came by right by Fanshawe College. Mm-hmm. So uh, me and my partner, uh, business partner, are looking at that one. Uh, and things like that always come up, right? Yeah. And uh, again, as I said, we make sure to provide top quality service to our clients. So all of our real estate clients, they'll come to us saying, hey, Mitt, do you know anyone who can help us with financing? So within our own client base, we know clients who've sold properties, who are looking to retire, who are looking to do private money lending, and we're able to connect them. We're just say, hey, why don't you guys just chat? Maybe something works out. And we just do that. And as a result, a lot of people are very appreciative that we take the time to make those connections. Or even when we're looking at the underlying assets saying, hey, listen, you've refinanced this property or this asset isn't going to be increasing anymore in this area. Maybe it's time to realize the capital gains here and redeploy your capital elsewhere to make a better return. And that's where we come from a more holistic approach because we're investors and owners in the assets. So we understand that aspect of things versus where most accountants that they deal with might have a property or two. But they're not looking to optimize. And I I think that really came in from um, both my role as an, an asset management but also from all the business cases that I did through DECA and university. Absolutely. Well. But also, and when it comes to like sales, like we were just talking about this with the previous guest, um, the idea of value add, right? Mm-hmm. Providing value to people as much as you can for free um, puts you, it puts you as a, a thought leader in their minds. Mm-hmm. So when you do go to them with something that you want for a close or like, hey, this is my conversion, what I want to convert you into, right? They already trust you, right? Because you've given them that value before. Right, and that's benefited you so far, I'm assuming, right? A hundred percent. So the funniest thing I find is you talk to people from like three years ago. I've had a, I had a guy reach out from three, he's, he met me at a startup grind event three years ago, knew that I did accounting, mm. and reached out to say, hey, man, are you still in the space? What are you doing, et cetera. And I caught up with him, and now we're managing his book of business. Amazing. Uh, similarly, another person, I, w- I was at Niagara Falls for a real estate investor dinner, and they mentioned, hey, I saw you speak at XYZ event. I was actually going to reach out, but now that you're here, you go. Let's connect, blah, blah, blah. So under, under MIT CPA, you also manage properties through this? Or this is just No, this accounting? is solely our accounting practice. Okay. Yeah, we have a separate entity for our real estate deals here in Canada. We've got another entity out for, for our U.S. investments. Uh, but if people are interested, you can contact me at my Perfect. accounting practice email. You can contact here, right? Yeah. They'll contact us. Yeah. Mid at midcpa.com, okay. Correct. Perfect. So let's get into the more interesting 
topic. I thought that was interesting enough. Yeah, I, I think so too, man. But then this, this is really cool. Yeah. Because I got to see it in action at Collision. Yeah. Right? Um, super cool product um, where you're, it's stage two, stage three automation, but I'll let you talk about it. Actually, let's bring up the, it's on YouTube, right? No, the demo? If, you hit, if you hit the Lane Cruise tab, you'll have it uh, load up, actually. Yeah. There we go. So what you're seeing here is a 2017 Mercedes Sprinter uh, with no onboard automated technologies operating at the same levels as a 2018 Tesla Model S. Wow. So this is an aftermarket kit that makes almost any vehicle drive itself. To a, to a it provides them level two, level three self-driving. So what's level two, level three? So what you're able to get is adaptive cruise control in, in these vehicles and a little bit more. Uh, what it won't, it gives you all self-driving, but you still need to have a driver behind the driver's seat, and you still need to be able to take over uh, to do navigational turns. So you just can't type in, I want to go to UFT Toronto, uh, like St. George campus from UT, UTSC. It won't do that. But what you can do is it'll get you on the road. You can turn the system on. It'll keep you in the lane. It'll go through the, uh, like the curvatures, and then you can take your navigational turn and turn it back on, and it'll take you and carry you out through that. Throughout. So you press signal light, and it turns it turns for you, stuff like that? Right. So actually, uh, I think the wheels turn right now, but uh, you actually have an adapter that sits on the top that you're able to press, and it turns it on. Uh, any sort of disengagement happens when you press on the gas or the brake uh, or steering wheel. Uh, when there's, if there's a so power, like a normal cruise control kind of modality. Cruise control, but more. So there are, like... Uh, it's really available for a lot of people who, you know, want the latest in technologies, whether it's a Cadillac Super Cruise where you're paying, you know, uh, over $70,000 for and paying additional fees for that capability. Well, a lot of commercial vehicles don't have these cap capabilities. They don't even have automatic emergency braking. In the, in the new passenger vehicles like the Hyundais, yes, in ideal conditions you can turn on the cruise control factor to do the adaptive cruise control, but it's not. It's only available when the lines are perfectly painted and it's super clear. In other areas, it won't. It won't work, and you have to take over it and you have to drive. Well, that becomes such a huge problem in places like Toronto, where you have uh, the craziest weather patterns. Like here, we, we had to film in, in rain. Yeah. Uh, but we've you know we've went, gone through snow and all of that. So we were actually the first private company licensed to test on Ontario roads outside of the University of Toronto and University of Waterloo. So let's go to the modular features of it. So these are all the different parts, right? Something that yeah. attaches so actually, the I think if you went to the lane cruise tab again, you could we could actually go through the components. Yeah. Okay. And then if we scroll down. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you actually click on this, you can see this. So the Lynx unit is our brain camera unit, okay. uh, which is our vision and computer pro edge compute processing. Uh, so this is like um, this goes right on top of the right behind your rear view right, mirror. Rear view mirror. Okay. Yeah. So the screen is optional, and this basically allows you to, to see what's happening on the road or open up other applications. Mm -hmm. So this is actually interesting for our fleet clients who actually want to have that, so they can record certain instances or, or tap the screen to identify certain communications over. Um, in here, you basically have an NVIDIA TX2 uh, along with an HD uh, GPS unit. So we can actually track your vehicle up to a 30-centimeter uh, radius on the road. So when you typically look at Google Maps or any fleet management app, it'll tell you which side of the lane you're on. Yeah. Or Google Maps will tell you which road you're on, but it won't tell you in which specific lane. So the reason for that is because we're creating these maps to basically provide virtual railroad tracks for future cars and other uh, OEM-produced vehicles, whether it's like Toyota, etc., to be able to utilize our maps to drive when it has no vision and when radar and LIDAR are enough. And that's called telematics. That's a portion of our telematics. It's our HD GPS maps. Okay. 
Nice. And then the other components of it are... So what you have is this brake actuator. So again, everything is external. There's other organizations that will try to hack into the vehicle, but that voids your warranty, and nobody wants to go onto GitHub, download code, and yeah. plug it into your vehicle. Yeah. As a commercial business, you need redundancies and safety. So uh, our team comes from industrial automation, former Honda, Tesla, Husky. So we've gone through and, and come from a safety background, and no one to go through multiple iterations. I come from asset management, controls, and PwC. So... Uh, we're very risk adverse in that sense. It's why we got licensed with the MTO. We're constantly in communications with the regulators, and we work with the uh, the Avon network as well here in Canada to really deploy our systems. So what you have here is the brake actuator, which slides onto your brake pedal, and we, there's a chain that basically gets bolted down, and it gets all of these devices get communicated through an RJ45 cable. It's equivalent to like your Ethernet cable that gives it the power and the communication protocol. So it actually communicates with the devices all, all with all the devices. We don't actually rely on anything within your vehicle for that functionality. Awesome, man. And so basically, it'll, it'll pull down on it, and there's actually an emergency lever that if you want to mechanically take it over, you're able to disengage and release, release the brake. So it's like a physical component that actually moves the actual brake and, exactly. uh, and the accelerator on the vehicles. Correct. And this works in almost every vehicle? Every vehicle. Any automatic vehicle, yeah. Any automatic vehicle. And then this is our gas control module. So this gas control module is what we utilize to control your gas components. Because more than accelerator or yeah, accelerator. Accelerator, okay. Perfect. And then this is this is our wheel actuator. So both our wheel actuator and brake pedal actuator uh, are the ones that we have uh, pending patents on uh, for the past two years. So our actuator is external. So at the top is what you you hit to turn it on. Uh, we're able to tell even when the system is off how you're performing. So when you're pressing on the brake, we've got a sensor in there. When you're controlling your steering wheel, we've got a sensor in there. Same thing with the gas. So we're measuring your performance throughout. Yeah. So we can actually tell how your drivers are operating when the system is off. So when an accident happens, you know if they actually try to press the brake or if they actually try to control the steering wheel. And we can give you both the visual cues for that as well. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I saw this live demo at Collision you're, you're given, and it was pretty cool how like smooth the ride was, mm-hmm. right? Um, the wheel kind of turns on itself. You can see the actuator there, right behind the steering wheel. Yeah. And it just it, it turns itself, but you need to have a person in the vehicle, right? Like of 100%. course, in the, behind the driver's seat. Um, what are the limitations there? Like uh, when, at what point do they need to jump in or anything like that? Right. So limitations can come like. I don't know if you were in the vehicle at the time. Well, it can handle cu- people cutting you off, cutting yeah. you off as well. But when you arrive at a stop sign, or you arrive at a dead end road where you need to make a judgment call, that's when it'll disengage and it'll beep at you to take over. Okay. Um, or if it's in a circumstance where it's, uh, you know, the weather uh, inclement, weather is, is out of this world, and even as a human you're unable to make a decision, it's going to beep and tell you to take over and make that judgment call because it's not going to make a judgment call that you wouldn't know what to do either. No, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely the coolest thing. Um, so you start on as a CFO yeah. of the company. You're still a CFO, um, but you're starting taking up the lead sales role as well, talking to, talking to the VCs and talking to potential mm-hmm. clients. So I, I guess, yeah. So um, the way my role with Ignatic actually started was, our, again, our practice was interested in the tech startup space. We were working with a handful of other tech startups. Uh, one of the employees from one of the startups actually went over to Exmatic. At the time, they had just presented on Dragon's Den. They needed two years' worth of financials and stuff put together that they hadn't really done. Uh, I had a chance to meet uh, the CEO, and I saw the idea. And really, our goal was automation. The goal was automation for all. is providing an ability for uh, the regular consumer 
who isn't able to go out and buy a Tesla or a higher-end Mercedes or a higher-end like Cadillac to get that capability and provide it to them so they could, they could still experience the, the luxuries of the world. Uh, and that's where we originally started with the B2C focus. Uh, and, and I actually, I believe in it. I thought it was, it was very cool uh, that how far they had gone with such little money. And so I, I'd come on uh, just to do their accounting work, but they really liked uh, the minds that I had when I was asking all the right type of questions. They didn't really have anyone related to accounting, finance, business on their team. So I started off really helping them part-time. After help, helping them for a fee, we, we did some part-time work um, for shares and, and so on and so forth. And then we raised our seed round. Uh, at the time, you know, our accounting practice was going well and is a little more stable, not as much, didn't really require as much of my attention. Started helping Exmatic, you know, navigate the whole process of where we we're going to go as a business. We were getting feedback from a lot of investors and, and people saying, hey, you know, we see B2C, we don't see DBC, uh, B2C, we have a lot of consumers saying, oh, I want this tomorrow. Others saying, like, oh, that's too expensive. It was a lot of miscommunication and feedback and taking all of that and processing it was very difficult as we took it from a prototype at the same time to a commercializable product. With a team being very engineering and programming, their whole goal is to make a commercializable product, and they're not really focused on the business side of things, where I came in and said, hey, listen, we've got to uh, focus on that, identify customers, uh, pilot partners, and work on that. So uh, last year, we started a pilot project with the city of Toronto. Now we've got commercial uh, pilots uh, with private partners, and we're deploying our kits actively now. Awesome. Yeah, I'm trying to bring up the video I had, but I don't have it, but... One of the coolest things also is your startup house, right? right. You're, you're, you guys run this out of a, out of a residential home, and it looks like the Silicon Valley, <laughs> like HBO series Silicon Valley kind of house, yeah. right? You call yourself the Eric Bachman of the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I'm the only non-engineer and programmer. Funny yeah. enough, like Eric Bachman, I, I do have to learn the tech and understand how you know, our technology works from like, the ground up, from like, the electro electro electrical components to the idea behind the programming, the idea behind machine learning. Uh, and our AI. Uh, obviously, I can't actually code anything, uh, but I have an understanding so that as I'm out and I'm speaking to a lot of people, whether it's investors, other uh, businesses who could benefit from our kit, uh, you end up encountering a lot of other individuals who could potentially be a value add to your team. Yep. And so it's understanding, hey, what kind of skill set do you have? Will it really mesh with uh, like our team and, and, and the culture that we're creating? Yeah. So last year, we had raised our seed round and you know, coming from where we were working out of a warehouse in mm -hmm. Jane and Eglinton, and you know the occasional pizza, pizza here and there. We decided, okay, we need to get an office. Uh, you know, the team's growing was rapidly growing. We were about four people expanding to about ten people at the time, and we need to find a place where you know we could both have an office space for people to work and a garage so that we could actually deploy our kids, do all our testings, have our test stands going, and and operate them. And realistically, anything that was in, in Toronto or the GTA it looked like you were going to have to pay about ten grand for like an office space, and about five to ten grand for a shop yep. to do all that work. And we said, okay, well, like our burn rate is going to go through the roof. This doesn't make really practical sense. And having tried to do, uh, or having tried to run other small businesses in the past myself, I could, uh, I, we knew it didn't really make sense. So we talked about it. And we said, you know what? See, and I decided, okay, a house makes sense. If we rent a house, what we can do is use the living room to set up desks so people can work out of there. We can set up a meeting room slash conference room. 
we can have our garage set up into a shop where we can do all the work because in the winter time in Canada the weather varies you can't really do it always outside and we were doing it we used to do it out in parking lots in the areas that we work so instead we said okay now we can do it in our garage where it's well heated etc and better yet we also had bedrooms available so that if staff had to stay overnight that they could sleep over yeah absolutely and the cost was you know one fourth of it so it immediately made sense and we were able to extend our runway uh, with the money that we had raised a lot longer mm-hmm. whereas typically the funds that we had raised would have ran out in half the time period with that type of burn on just uh, rent an office yeah i'm going to bring up the video of your housing i got it okay no problem yeah, and I think uh, really from having my own business as well and, and, and being involved in other businesses, uh, I was able to really identify cost-saving measures. Uh-huh. Funny enough, a lot of people end up raising money and, and then they go on a spending spree. <laughs> it's common uh, with people when they do raises because they've already identified yeah, areas where they have to spend. We've heard a lot of horror stories about uh, the money being going to completely different purposes. Yeah, exactly. For, right? So I think uh, for a lot of it is you really outline to your investors, hey, this is where the money is going to be spent. But then even after that is... Keep, like, obviously identify people who you want to hire, things you want to purchase, but hold off on it. Delay that gratification of, you know, growing your team immediately right after you did the raise to really vet out the people and the culture. And then you really know what sort of infrastructure and items you want to build. You know, whether instead of just buying brand new equipment, you can identify equipment being sold by startups just as equivalent. Those who went under are always looking to sell and they need to get cash to pay back their investors. So they always want to let a discount. Uh, for example, some of our old computer equipment, I, I, I'm the one who goes on Kijiji and I, we, we sell it um, because we want to extend that dollar an extra, a little bit further. Yeah. Uh, for, for us as a hardware company, a hardware software company, it's, it's very difficult, especially here, raising the capital here in Canada because with hardware, you have a lot of iterations, a lot of changes, a lot of issues. So a lot of people, when we had initially went to raise, were a little hesitant. They didn't really know where the regulations were going. They were very afraid. Uh, we had gone to plug and play two years ago to raise capital. They had said, hey, come stay here. Uh, but the CEO felt, you know, we're a Canadian company. A lot of us are immigrants. So it really made sense to really represent the greatness of Canada by continuing to maintain our presence here and, and growing here. So we ended up raising money here and staying here. That's um, amazing. But now we're, we're raising our Series A. Uh, we've got a lot of interest from Canadians, surprisingly. Um, but we've got a lot more interest out of the U.S. as well. And funny enough, uh, some of the... Uh, individuals who were at Plug and Play when we were there, they raised a few million dollars, uh, and now they're here in Canada, and now they're they're looking to buy our technology to utilize it to get to where we are. Now. Yeah, yeah. And so, funny enough, when we get a chat with people, say, "Hey, uh, how, like, well, usually they ask how much did you spend to get here? Because usually they're expecting you know a few million. Yeah. Uh, and we're and when we say you know under half a million dollars, they get confused, and then we say, "Hey, we fortunately, uh, thanks to the Ontario Center of Excellence." and the AVEN network here in Canada, we were able to really leverage government grants and programs to really extend, take our seed money and basically double it in, in spend. And it was thanks to these organizations and their help that we were actually able to get to where we are today. That's amazing. Uh, and so we're really appreciative of Canada and we yeah. continue to you know, hire and grow people here. Uh, it would have just been great for us to have a little bit more capital here. Yep. Um, some of the programs themselves, uh, they're a little bit more conservative because they don't really the individuals themselves are unsure of where the self-driving space is going to go. But that's the whole point. You want to push innovation. It's take the risk. Uh, and, and that's what I really try to push there. Uh, I know a lot of other Canadian VCs who uh, are pretty outspoken, like Tony Lacavera, who really believes that 
you know, a lot more money needs to be invested in Canada. A lot of, a lot of people need to be less risk adverse and, and spending it because it's only through trial and, and error can we really grow it versus us building these really top talent and top businesses just to be sold to an American organization. Yeah, and that's traditionally what happens, right? Yeah. But now we've seen the emergence of uh, entrepreneurs who stay in Canada and emerge in Canada and, and actually build long-lasting companies, right? Yeah. And it's amazing you say that you got the help from these, uh, from Shred, from Ontario Excellence, and what else you said, Avian Network? Avian. Avian, Avian Network. Um, Autonomous Vehicles Infrastructure Network, Innovation Network, sorry. Perfect. Because um, hardware startups are very hard, right? Especially, sure. especially in this region. Um, where most of the funds go into like the more bigger established manufacturing sectors. Yeah. So, so funny enough, people come and say, "Hey, you know, Justin Trudeau announced this whole autonomous vehicle spend, etc." Like, so you're, you guys are going to get so much money. It's not that easy. There's mm-hmm. so many layers to it, and establishing those relationships. And unfortunately, I didn't come from an automotive background. Mm-hmm. So if I worked in the automotive space, I'm sure I would have had some of those relationships to really know how to tap into that. Yep. Uh, funny enough, it goes to more R&D projects related to those, uh, uh, those in more established organizations like the Hondas of the world. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We see that. So it's, it's cool that you've actually been able to get financing and get support in that, um, has it been because of connections you've had, or uh, people responsive to you talking personally, or have you gone through like the actual designated channel, like applying for financing through traditional means? We've, what, we've done it. We've done it all. So thanks, thanks, Futurepreneur, thanks BDC. That's how we got some initial capital. As I first initially joined the company, mm-hmm. uh, I had pitched at Aviva's InsureTech, found one of our invest- investors there. Uh, another one is uh, Hero VC. Um, uh, Colin Webster and his, now his partner Scott Pelton, they're starting uh, Risk Capital to really go and focus on early stage businesses who are then going to be pursuing Series A as well. And you know, Colin took the chance, he's the one who wrote uh, one of the larger checks initially, and he's been supportive and, and guiding us through the way, and he's one of the people who I think uh, is at the forefront of investing in early stage startups and understanding that you know you need to invest in companies that do hardware and software. Yeah. Because it, I find it crazy because most people all invest in software. Yeah. And at some point, sure, the code can be different and can be unique. But at some point, multiple startups working in the same space are leveraging the same type of type of code, and it's a similar type of backend. So once they burn through the money, uh, you kind of have that code, but so does the other your competitors. Whereas with hardware, you're always making different type of iterations. And because we've been working on this for multiple years now, we've been able to get to the point where we've already gone through... Uh, the trials and tribulations that a lot of these organizations are now facing now when they're trying it. They're trying to do sensor fusion, uh, using, you know, LiDAR and camera. Uh, and when I, we just laugh and we say, yeah, we, we did that three years ago. We, we saw the uh, performance on our models, and it was very, it wasn't that much of a improvement, marginal improvement, to be worth the additional cost. So we've gone through a lot of these steps, and yeah. we were able to vet them out. That's awesome, man. Um, it's great to see a Canadian like, a hardware company really come out and yeah. and um, make a make a stake in the game. For um, sure. I mean, I, I think funny enough, as I said about software, is yes, we're a hardware company right now, but over time we actually do become a software company. Yeah. As we're able to, again, some of the other applications outside of just our hardware is that we provide fleet management software and analytics, telematics to our clients. And that's been most of the interest you've been getting right now is the telematics solutions. Right? Yeah, because because of our vision-based system, we can actually tell you what the driver's able to see. So. When you look at the pain points that these commercial vehicle drivers face, uh, one of the major factors was pay. So the, the national fleets used to have a 97% turnover based on like the National Trucking Association. So this past year, they hiked their pay. So we're like, okay, retention is going to go up, right? Because that was more than 50% of the factor. Well, uh, it only uh, turnover only went down to 84%. 
So you still had 84% turnover in your staff. So you yeah. have a constant amount of spend on training your staff, on, on, on training new staff every single time. So what were the other pain points? The other pain points was communications with the dispatcher, the drivers being fatigued, um, lack of being able to communicate back and forth and having to spend additional time to do certain things. So funny enough, when we looked at all these other factors, we said, hey, with our lane cruise system and our fleet manager app, you can actually see a live visual of what your driver sees in yep. front of them through the camera. So now when the dispatcher is communicating with the driver, they're not going to just yell at the driver saying, hey, here, on my legacy uh, fleet management system, it says you're in this point. Why aren't you going? Why aren't you going? They can actually see, oh, there's a, there's a pile up or there's an issue happening or there's a road closure and that's why the detour happened. Uh, in some of the more niche applications like line painting, um, a lot of these uh, organizations who do that, they have so to line painting to like those trucks that go slowly and around the road and, and road. paint the lines, yeah. That, right? Yeah. So those organizations have to report to the government why there's ever a delay. With our system, they're able to then capture that video and record that incident, and we're able to provide reports that they can then just provide to the ministry to say, hey, this is why we were delayed. Versus right now, manually, the driver's got to stop, make a note, and again, more time savings on the operator. Or, I'm sorry, more time spent by the operator having to make those logging and those notes. Uh, further, like a lot of these vehicles, you're able to get fuel savings yeah. uh, through the adaptive cruise control function where a lot of these vehicles don't even have cruise uh, or the cruise control, adaptive cruise control functionality. And this adaptive cruise control functionality has been shown to save 20% fuel savings. So awesome. a lot of for these organizations, uh, they're able to see the payback period on the kit in, yeah. in less than half a year. Perfect, man. Yeah. Let's roll back to you, man. So like, what's next uh, for you? Are you going to Doubling down exotic, you know, real estate practice, um, the accounting practice, right? What do you want to be doing in the coming future? <laughs> see, I think the accounting practice has been an amazing way to see a lot of businesses and a lot of real estate. So I think we'll still, I'll still be maintaining that. You know, I've got other partners in the business now. Uh, we're really growing and building a system in place, so it's very systematized. That way, we still have a relationship with our clients, still help them, but it doesn't take as much of my time. Uh, right now, myself or a, a majority of my focus is towards Exmatic. We're doing our Series A raise, and I see the potential of us to really disrupt the industry and provide a lot of value to a lot of businesses. And once we've built the war chest to consumers, because uh, deploying to consumers is a very challenging task, and so we wanted to build our war chest before we got there. And so that's where I want to go, and that'll really be able to show the capability and performance of, of myself as an operator in the tech startup space versus. You know, my, my track history has already been proven from an accounting practice standpoint and from a real estate standpoint, where this is another notch under my belt, which would allow to pursue other business opportunities in the tech startup space, where, uh, as we've already talked about in the, pa uh, in yeah. the past, uh, I've already got a couple of other ideas that I'd like to pursue uh, in the future after So you uh, want to start building? You want to start building now companies? Uh, build, yeah, building companies. Uh, I, I, it's been a great experience at Exmatic. Uh, yes, as you mentioned, I'm the CFO, but... I do everything but engineering and programming. Yeah. So as a result, I'm HR, CEO, CFO, sales, uh, person going to the grocery store to pick up food for the, for the <laughs> house, you know, getting, throwing out the recycling. It's being humble and understanding that, you know, sometimes you just got to pick up the task and just get it done. And, and that's what it is. And fortunately, I get to work with a great group of people at Exmatic who, who know that and are striving to the same goal. And, and we, we just work through it. Uh, a lot of us, you know, we're not making the top end salaries as most people would be if you were in... Uh, you know, in a Silicon Valley type of startup, but it's the understanding that, hey, we can build it here in Canada, we can make a goal, and we can make a difference in the Canadian VC ecosystem. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you're interested in working with other tech companies as, 
uh, maybe not a CFO, but uh, giving them the accounting advice kind of and, and the help there they need in that kind of financial right. the financials, so, right? So, so a lot of stuff that uh, we actually help with now is uh, sending them for like advisory and strategy. Accounting and finance we can help with as well. It's pretty templated at this point that we know, hey, you should be using utilizing these applications, you should be doing this to streamline your processes, and that's pretty straightforward and standard. Uh, where we now, what we now do is we say, hey, we can, we can have a management meeting or an advisory meeting once a month for a few, two, three hours. We can, you can talk, uh, typically we meet the CEOs and CFOs of the business, they can talk through their strategy, and then we'll typically identify points of where they can try to optimize or improve their business. For us, as we were able to see more traditional businesses, whether it's in real estate or other just regular businesses, or all the tech startups that we work with, we're able to see what works and what doesn't. So for us, we were able to already identify when Facebook changed the algorithm that, hey, Facebook ad spend isn't the way to go to really grow your customer base. You know, mm -hmm. like Your customer acquisition cost at the lifetime value isn't aligning up, lining up anymore. So you had to change your, your form of uh, targeting customers. And sometimes a lot of people think, okay, I'm just going to go B2C is like the best way. Or sometimes uh, going B2B and, you know, whether it's SME or enterprise, we, we're able to take all those considerations and factor that in and really consult on that type of, uh, consult on that area versus just, hey, this is your accounting system. Yeah. Right. Perfect, man. This has been great. Um, you've been talking a lot here. I feel like I haven't got any words in. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you're someone that really works on a lot of different things at the same time, which is crazy. Um, I thought I had my head full, hands full with like multiple things that I'd run, but you guys, again, real estate, accounting, and the the startup you're working with, and startups you uh, want to work with. Um, man, how do you motivate yourself, and how do you uh, organize and be productive? Like that's one of my things that I always get from you is that you're always on, on the ball with a lot of different things going on at the same time. Has it been practice? Has it been like just working the fields you have done, or is it like a mind game where you're like, okay, this is what I have to do, and just Grind it out. I think it's a combination of all of everything you kind of said. So working in professional services in, in the accounting practice and working at the smaller firm, uh, we always had multiple clients you had to juggle all the time. Mm -hmm. But that was easy because you were just juggling those jobs. And at that time, I was also focusing on real estate, so that made sense. Fortunately, I've got a great partner in my accounting practice, uh, Pierce Hanth, and you know, we we, he was actually my first partner in my real estate deal as well. So. We actually partner on our real estate investments and other businesses that we get involved with as well. So he's great. He's been great as a as a pillar of support uh, as the practice, accounting practice grows and as I step away and focus on Xmatic as well. Uh, on top of that, as we do pursue other real estate projects, I typically I'm no longer like the operator or the individual identifying the opportunity. Usually, uh, mm -hmm. I'm providing the capital or helping uh, obtain the source of financing to help us go there and uh, being there again as a, an overseer. Uh, but not in the day-to-day -day minutia. So you're systematic about people you, you brought on to work with you, right? Mm -hmm. So um, they uh, they operate at the higher capacity where you can't. Correct, right. exactly. They're, they get to be more involved in the day-to-day, -day, uh, but at the end of the day, it isn't easy. Um, funny enough, uh, my best friend Max always tells me, he's like, didn't you pursue the accounting practice and, uh, and working on all this so you could work less hours, go to the gym more, and have more control. Yeah. He's like, now you're working a lot more, et cetera, and it seems like it's out of your control. And I said, hey, man, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. Literally, you, you can tell me when I'm working until 2, 3 in the morning sometime, and you know, I, you know, I'm saying, fuck my life, fuck my life, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. But you look back, and, and you know, the life cycle of the entrepreneur, right? One day, you can have really lows of the lows, the next day, is it's, it's the peak of euphoria. Yeah. And fortunately, I've been able to see so much and learn so much versus a traditional role as a result of the accounting practice and being involved with Xmatic um, that typically most people aren't able to see. Amazing. 
Um, I bring up every, every uh, guest I have, right? The difference between entrepreneurs, I, I put them in a spectrum, visionaries and um, operators, right? Visionaries see the mountaintop that they want to create or move towards, and they're haunted by that vision, right? And even if they go somewhere else in life, they're like, they get dragged back towards that yeah. vision, whereas operators are more systematic. They start building things and putting them into place and like, hey, this is working, right? Let me build up more on this. Well, build up this other side and like, that doesn't work. And they are systematically test things. And you see more like the operator type, right? That's now being pulled to the visionaries because you see, because you, you've been around visionaries and see what they built and you're focusing on that end, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's because as I started the practice at first, it was like, okay, I know the template of how to build an accounting practice, what I've seen in and what worked. And really, it was just a way for me to initially take a step back and figure out what is it that I truly wanted. Yeah. And I think white space, for entrepreneurs, white space and period and time away from their actual work is very important because you can stay, step back and always ask, is this what I really want to do? What is it that I, what kind of impact do I want to leave? And fortunately for me, I've always been doing that. Um, I just didn't know where I wanted to go with things. I, you know, I, I get excited all the time. I, yeah. I, I love walking around a collision, seeing the different booths and the individuals and what they're working on. I'm like, I'm so glad you're working on this. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I totally want to be involved, but I just can't. Like, I'm too busy. I can't. Yeah, yeah. And I've had to, the hardest part for me is I've had to learn to say no. Uh, because there's so many cool projects yeah. out there that I'd love to be involved with. But again, uh, I'm not a computer program, which can run yeah. on multiple computers. I'm one individual person. So, you know, scheduling using uh, my calendar, uh, using multiple Trello boards to manage and map out. Uh, the different businesses and things that I'm involved with and having great people around has really been able to help provide that. Perfect, man. I'm glad you figured that out because I can't figure out Trello for life I me. Mean. <laughs> I've tried so many times. Pratithi has tried to get me on that too. Yeah. But, um, well, you yeah. just got to find what works for you, right? Yeah. Um, initially for me, I was, I was a notebook person. I had to take notes in a notebook. Funny enough, when I first started at PwC, I didn't do that. I was like, oh, I'll remember everything. I'll know what's going to stay in my head. And then you start working on more clients. You're like, oh, I am not going to remember this. Yeah. Then you're like, okay, write down each client, write down the things you need to do for each one of them. And then, funny enough, I actually do like my best uh, recall of things in the shower. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm notorious for taking long showers. I'm yeah. sorry to all my former roommates and people that I've lived with. I destroy the hot water tank for yeah. sure. Uh, but I find my best clarity and thinking is when I'm relaxing in the shower and I'm able to just walk through, okay, I literally, these are the different things that I need to get done. Absolutely. I literally put a tankless water heater in my house just because of my long showers, yeah. <laughs> now that unlimited hot water. But this has been great, man. So I really like the sentiment of um, how you wanted to like be part of the system that builds in Canada, right? And you focused your businesses on that and built around that. Because uh, I think the Toronto ecosystem especially is really popping off when it comes to innovation. A lot of things are happening here. And I'm happy that more and more companies are staying here. And I'm really happy that Exotic, Exotic coming, is coming out of here. And I'm sure in the years to come that we're going to be highlighting Exotic as a Toronto company that really mm-hmm. was born and bred here and uh, really made it. Thanks, sir. Right. I appreciate that. Perfect, man. Thanks for your time. We'll wrap up. And yeah. Ma- Thanks for coming on, man. No worries. Thank Perfect. you. Yeah.